But of course, there's another more traditional Christmas song with a very similar title, O Come All Ye Faithful, <laughs> right? And I have to admit that ever since Come All You Unfaithful was released, it's been harder to sing O Come All You Faithful like I used to. In light of my unfaithfulness, can I really be considered one of the faithful? Or to put it another way, which of these songs, O Come All You Faithful or Come All You Unfaithful, which better speaks to our identity as Christians? Who are we really? Who are we really? Are we faithless or are we faithful? Are we faithless or are we faithful? Now to paraphrase Martin Luther, believers in Jesus Christ are both faithless and faithful at the same time. We are faithless and faithful at the same time. On the one hand, Christian faithlessness is evident whenever we fail to fulfill our commitments to each other. From simply forgetting a promise that we made to our kids, to regularly neglecting the commitments of church membership, to the path of breaking our marriage vows, Christians are guilty of unfaithfulness. But at the same time, listen to how the New Testament describes our identity in Christ. In Ephesians 1.1, Paul says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, Colossians 1.2, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Jesus himself tells us that believers, when he returns, will hear these words from him, Well done, good and faithful servant. So on the one hand, we look at our lives and we know that there's unfaithfulness there, and yet we hear God's word tell us we are faithful in Christ. How can this be? How can both be true? If we're actually unfaithful, how can we be called faithful? Well, as we'll see this morning, it's because the faithful God transforms faithless sinners into faithful worshipers. So that again, the faithful God transforms faithless sinners into faithful worshipers. Faithless sinners like you and I become faithful worshipers through the work of a faithful father. You can open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. This final word from God in the Old Testament scriptures is a word of loving rebuke to the wayward remnant of Israel who's returned from exile. Last week we heard God's loving rebuke to the priests for their failure to honor his name. This week we're going to hear God's rebuke to his people for their faithlessness to the covenant. Our passage is Malachi 2, verse 10, through Malachi 3, verse 5. Listen to God's word this morning. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. We're going to break up our passage this morning into two sections. First, we're going to see Israel's faithlessness. And second, we're going to see God's faithfulness. Israel's faithlessness and God's faithfulness. And as we do that, my prayer is that, first, we will see our own faithlessness more clearly. I I pray that Israel's faithlessness will be a mirror for us, that will help us see how we have been faithless. But even more, I pray that we will rejoice this morning in the redeeming faithfulness of God that comes to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Israel's faithlessness. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. You know, I recently had a friend tell me that If you aren't disciplined in every area of your life, then you really aren't disciplined at all. If you're only disciplined in some areas of your life, well, really, you're just doing the things you want to do. And I think the same can be said for faithfulness. If if you're not faithful in every area of your life, you're probably not faithful. (laughs) You're you're just faithful when you want to be faithful. The reality is you're not a faithful person. And in Israel's case, their lack of faithfulness was manifesting itself in multiple areas of their lives. They weren't faithful, and it was showing itself over here and over here and over here. What we see in the first half of our passage today is that Israel is guilty of faithlessness in three different areas. They were being faithless to the covenant community around them. They were being faithless in their marriages, and they were being faithless in their own walks with God. And so let's look at each of these areas in turn this morning. Malachi begins in verse 10, by rebuking Israel for being faithless to the covenant community of Israel. He says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Notice that Malachi frames Israel's sin as a failure to be faithful to the covenant community. Israel was chosen by God as his special people. God created Israel as the community of his covenant love. He adopted Israel as his own son. And yet Israel has been faithless to that community and has profaned the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the overarching sin Malachi is addressing. Faithlessness to the community. Faithlessness to one another, even though we worship the same God who created us and loves us. Now, how have they been faithless to one another? How have they been faithless to the covenant community? 
Look at verses 11 and 12. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The seriousness of their faithlessness is underscored by Malachi using terms like abomination and profaned. What Israel is doing is absolutely detestable in the eyes of God. Well, what is it that they're doing? He says in verse 11, he has married the daughter of a foreign god. It's crucial that we notice the way Malachi states the problem. He's married the daughter of a foreign god. This text is not condemning ethnic intermarriage. The point is not that they've married a foreigner. The point is they've married the daughter of a foreign god. We know from the story of Ruth, which we saw last Christmas, that, that God's people could marry foreigners as Ruth came into Israel and said, your God is my God, your people is my people. That's a beautiful picture of what God can do to bring foreigners into his, into his family. But the issue here in Malachi is not that the women are foreigners, it's that they're idolaters. They're, they're worshiping idols, they're worshiping foreign gods, and God's people are marrying these idol worshipers. God warned Israel against this very thing in Deuteronomy 7. He commanded them back then, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And why not? Why shouldn't they? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This was the issue. Intermarriage to idol worshipers would lead Israel to be faithless in their worship of the true God. And if and when this happened, God told Israel what he would do. He said, if you do this, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. And so you see how this sin pertains to the whole community. By an Israelite intermarrying an idolater, Joe Israelite was introducing idolatry into all of Israel and inviting the wrath of God against the whole community. This is why Malachi prays in verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. Otherwise, his idolatry will spread through and corrupt Israel's worship, and the whole nation will be cut off. By intermarrying with idolaters, Israel was faithless to the covenant community. That singular act by one Israelite was an act of faithlessness to the whole community as it introduced idolatry and invited the wrath of God. That's one way they were faithless, but it's not the only way. Next, Malachi addresses a type of faithlessness that we all have felt the sting of in various ways. The Israelites were guilty of marital faithlessness. Look at verses 13 through 16. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So here this second indictment of faithlessness begins with a revealing look at Israel's blindness to their own sins. God says that, that they're covering his altar with tears because they understand as they come to worship that God's not accepting their offerings. They're crying and they're weeping because God's not looking at them with favor. And they don't know why. 
Why isn't he blessing our offerings? Why isn't he blessing our worship? You see, they're, they're oblivious to what they've done to bring about God's displeasure. And we need to understand this is what sin does. Sin blinds us to even the most obvious realities. And when this happens, it's only God's mercy to expose what's really there. And that's what God's doing for his people in this passage. Why isn't he regarding their offerings? Because they've been faithless in their marriage covenants. We can see the way this faithlessness takes shape from verse 16, where God says, for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her. The the faithlessness that's being talked about is that the men of Israel were wrongfully putting away their wives through divorce. Though there was a provision in the Old Covenant in the case of immorality, there's no indication that that's what's going on here. These men are not rightfully divorcing wives who have been unfaithful. These men are divorcing their wives without any scriptural grounds to do so. They're treating their marriage vows lightly, and they're leaving their wives probably to intermarry with the idol worshippers of the other nations. And because they're making light of marriage through these divorces, God gives them a weighty description of the marriage covenant. He wants, he wants them to see the sinfulness of divorce. And so first, God reminds them of his presence in marriage. He says in verse 14, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. You know, when we attend a wedding ceremony, we are there as witnesses of the marriage vows that are being made. But in every wedding ceremony, since the Garden of Eden, God himself presides as the primary witness. God is there when people are married. When you enter into marriage, you enter into it before God himself. You make your vows before his ears. You exchange your rings in his sight. The marriage relationship is lived out in the presence of God himself. And to divorce your spouse is to break the vows that God himself has witnessed and that he himself will hold you accountable to. God says, I was witness to those vows. I was was witness to that covenant. He also reminds them of the gift of marriage. The Lord says that the wife is your companion and your wife by covenant. We often think about our roles in marriage. We think about being leader and helper or provider and homemaker, whatever other roles we might put in there. But we need to understand this morning that husbands and wives, before we are leader and helper, before we are provider and nurturer, husbands and wives are companions. We're companions. In marriage, God's gift to you is the gift of a truly unrivaled human friendship. In marriage, you get to live in a lifelong, deepening, joyful relationship with another image bearer who compliments you like nobody else can. In marriage, God gives you the gift of human friendship at its deepest level. She is your companion by covenant. But in verse 16, the Lord says that the man who does not love his wife but divorces her actually covers his garment with violence. To divorce your spouse is to despise the gift of companionship and to harm your spouse instead. To to trample on that gift instead is to take that which you should cherish and to trample over it. God's saying, "Don't, don't you understand the gift I've given you? He reminds them of his presence in marriage, the gift of marriage. He also reminds them of the bond of marriage. In verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Do you realize that when we speak of oneness in marriage, we aren't just speaking theoretically. We aren't just speaking metaphorically. We aren't just speaking idealistically. There are other contexts where that might be what's happening. You might think of a sports team that's going to fight as one. 
But marriage is a little different than that, isn't it? And here's why. Those contexts, as much as a coach might lead a team to have unity, a coach cannot bring the actual bond of the Spirit to his players. A portion of the Spirit in their union. In other words, through his life-giving Spirit, God himself creates an invisible yet actual spiritual unity between a husband and a wife. In marriage, God himself joins a man and wife together. There's nothing else like this besides union with Christ and the union we experience in the church. God makes this unity happen. And to divorce your spouse then is to rupture the spiritual bond that God himself has made. He reminds them of the bond of marriage. And then finally, he reminds them of the purpose of marriage in verse 15. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. See, marriage has a purpose. Marriage has a goal. Marriage has a mission. From the very beginning, the creator designed marriage as the context for intimacy, and he designed intimacy as the means of childbearing. Now, we live in a culture that bends over backwards to separate all three of those realities. Marriage and intimacy and childbearing do not need to belong together according to our culture, but they inextricably belong together according to God's word and God's design. It's also worth noting that God's desire for marriage is not that you would simply have as many children as you can have. He wants godly offspring. He wants you to have children, and he wants you to shepherd your children, and he wants you to raise them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. He wants them to become worshipers. God's purpose for marriage is the multiplication of worshipers. God's purpose for your marriage is the multiplication of worshipers as you enjoy the gift of companionship. You come together in the bond of one flesh and God himself brings forth a child for you to raise and to preach the gospel to that they might become worshipers as well. This is what God wants in your marriage. But to divorce your spouse is just to neglect that purpose altogether for some other purpose. Instead, something else becomes what you want. Your purpose isn't his purpose anymore. And see, this is what Israel was doing in their marriages. They, they were making light of all of this, and they were being faithless to their covenants. They were faithless to one another through their intermarriages, and they were faithless to their spouses as they practiced divorce in this way. And then finally, in verse 17, we see that Israel was faithless to the Lord himself. He says, you've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does what is evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, just let me remind you of Israel's situation. Malachi is speaking to the remnant that's returned from exile. And contrary to what they expected, based on the promises of the prophets, their return has not been easy. They expected to return to a restored Israel, but they're still under foreign rule. They expected to return to a glorious temple, but all they have is a poor man's temple. They expected to return to a prosperous land, but the land is struggling to bear its fruit. They're poor, they're oppressed, and at the same time, their enemies seem to be doing pretty well. The idolaters of other nations seem to be prospering. The wicked are the ones who seem to be blessed, while God's chosen people seem to be continuing under his curse. And really, there's a connection in all of this, isn't there? As they struggle with their circumstances, as they view idol-worshiping nations In prosperity, they're making light of their marriage covenants, divorcing these wives to intermarry with those idol-worshiping nations so that they can experience the blessing that God's not giving them. 
And at the root of all of it is a faithlessness to the Lord. See, here's the thing. These former exiles were not the first Israelites to face this type of life. In their own scriptures, they had examples of how they could honestly pray and trust the Lord in these types of circumstances. If you think about the prophet Habakkuk, he said, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We think about the psalmist Asaph in the midst of the exact same question and problem, saying, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but for me it's good to be near God. But the Israelites didn't follow the examples of these faithful prayers in their scriptures these faithful men who walked by faith in those circumstances. Instead, the Israelites in Malachi's day gave themselves over to the cynicism of unbelief. Everyone who does evil is good in God's sight. Where is the God of justice? He's nowhere to be found. We see it further down in Malachi as well, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping this charge of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see, Israel had come to believe that God didn't care. He didn't love them. He wasn't going to help them. And it wasn't worth following him. So they were faithless to the covenant community. They were faithless to their marriage vows because fundamentally they were faithless to the Lord. At the root of their faithlessness was a lack of faith in God himself. If he didn't see them, if he didn't care about them, if he wasn't going to help them, then what was the point of living for him? This was their mentality. Now before we see God's response, we should pause this morning and consider how their faithlessness reveals our faithlessness. So let me ask first, have we been faithless to one another? As a local community in covenant together, have we been faithless to one another? Israel was faithless by their intermarriages to idolaters. But for us, really, whenever we pollute our worship by giving in to the idols of our hearts, we're being faithless to each other. Whenever we allow idolatry to remain in our lives and we don't repent of it and turn from it, we are being faithless to each other. We're introducing idolatry into the body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So when I sin and give myself to sin, when you give yourself to sin, to these idols, we're being faithless to our covenant to one another. Have we been faithless to our marriage covenants with our spouses? Israel was faithless by divorcing their wives with unbiblical grounds, but marital faithlessness can happen inside the covenant as well. Are you forsaking companionship with your spouse? Have you just stopped pursuing God's gift to you? Are you engaging in adultery or sexual immorality? Are you neglecting God's purpose and mission for your family to raise godly offspring? All of this is marital faithlessness. Also, have we been faithless to trust the Lord in our own circumstances? Have we turned away from honest lament and hopeful prayer to a sinful disposition of bitterness and unbelief? Have we stopped obeying God because it doesn't seem like he loves us or cares for us and so it's not worth it anymore? Have you been faithless? Have we been faithless? 
And if so, what is God's response to that faithlessness? This brings us to the second part of our passage this morning, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. We've already mentioned that this restored remnant of exiles has not seen the promises come true like they thought they would. And I want to point you back now to one of those promises that God made through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, the scriptures spoke this message of hope to the exiles. To God's people in exile, he said, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God spoke that to the exiles and said, this will happen someday. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to send someone to prepare the way. I myself am going to come, and I'm going to reveal my glory to all people. This is what the exiles expected to see when they returned a messenger preparing the way for the Lord himself to come and reveal his glory. At the time of Malachi, though, even though they've returned, that has not happened. That has not happened. It's part of the problem. They think it won't happen. But in Malachi 3, verse 1, God responds to their faithlessness by restating the exact same promise Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God will not be faithless to his word that he spoke through Isaiah. He will do what he said. He will send a messenger. The messenger will prepare the way. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, he himself will come and appear to his people. Israel is asking, where is the God of justice? And God is saying, I am coming. I will come. God is faithful and he will come as he said. But here's the thing. What will happen when he comes? Look what the Lord says next in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. You see, God will show his faithfulness by coming to his people, as he said. And he will also show his faithfulness by coming in his holiness to purify his people through judgment. Like a refiner's fire that melts away all the dross so that only gold remains, God's judgment will consume the wicked so the only true worshipers remain. Like a fuller's soap that's used to scrub away the filth off of a garment, God's judgment will remove the filth of evil in Israel so that only the righteous remain. And in light of Israel's sins that we've been seeing these last few weeks, Israel ought to be able to answer the Lord's question. Who can endure his coming? No one can endure it. Who can stand when he appears? No one will be able to stand when he appears. Israel is the dross. Israel is the filth. They've been faithless. They've been dishonoring the name of God. They've turned away from him. Now, while it would have been natural for the Israelites to hear this and think that when he comes, he's coming in judgment against their wickedness, notice next the sequence of what will happen on that day. It says in verse 3, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, 
and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker and the widow and the fatherless, those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. And again, just notice the sequence there. First, he will purify his people of wickedness. Then he will draw near to judge wickedness. First, he will create righteous worship in his people. Then he will condemn unrighteousness among his people. First, he will bring transformation. Then he will bring condemnation. What's happening is that this is a word of hope in the midst of a word of judgment. This is a word of mercy in the midst of a word of condemnation. All is not lost for the Israelite who hears this and believes. I'll ask a few questions. Why would God do this? Why would the Lord do this for those who have despised his name? Why would God offer mercy and hope to those who have been faithless to his covenant? Verse 6 tells us why. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Israel deserved the full weight of God's judgment for their sins. If the Lord was going to come as a refiner's fire, then Israel ought to be consumed in that fire. And yet, because God made a covenant with Jacob, because God set his love on Jacob, and because God does not change, he remains faithful to that covenant love and does not consume his people. Israel's hope in the midst of their faithlessness was nothing but the faithfulness of God. In our faithlessness, our hope is nothing but the faithfulness of God. This is why God offers salvation comes with salvation first, not judgment first, but salvation. And we need to answer again, how does this happen? God, God says this will happen, but how will this happen? How will the holy God not consume his sinful people when he comes? How will their faithlessness be transformed into faithfulness? Of course, this would remain a mystery to Israel for the next 400 years, but the mystery has been revealed to us. So we know today that the messenger of verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way. We know today that that's John the Baptist. He was the messenger that prepared the way. He was the voice crying, prepare the way for the Lord. But as you notice in verse 1, there's another messenger that's named. It says, the messenger will come, prepare the way, then I will appear and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Who is this second messenger? Is this another human prophet after John the Baptist, or is this just another way that the Lord is describing himself? The answer is yes. It's both. John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord who comes as the messenger whom you delight. And he shows us who this is by pointing to Jesus Christ and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, he must become greater, I must become less. Behold, the, the Spirit descended on him. He is the one. The messenger prepares the way for the Lord, and the Lord comes as the final word of God. Jesus Christ is the Lord of hosts who came as a fragile baby. 
He is the word of God who came as the final messenger from God to his people. He's the one who's worshipped in the temple, and yet as soon as he appeared in the temple, he allowed himself to be taken by the temple guard and tried and arrested and flogged. He is the refiner's fire, and yet he came not to consume us in our wickedness, but to be consumed in our place under the judgment of God. He is the one who baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire so that our hearts might be cleansed through his blood and so that our worship might be pleasing to him once again. And this is what we celebrate during Advent, this coming, this first coming, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. We celebrate the mercy of God toward us who ought to be consumed for our sins. We celebrate the faithfulness of God that saves us when we were faithless. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. At the same time, we anticipate his second coming. This second then, I will draw near to you for judgment. On that day, all of our sufferings will be relieved. All who do not fear him will be held to account. And our worship will finally and fully and forever be purified. God is faithful, and that day will come too. He is coming. And until he does, as we live between Christ's first and second comings, there's one command in this passage that we need to take to heart as we close today. We see it in verse 15 and verse 16 in reference to marital faithlessness, but, but the instruction applies to all faithlessness. God says, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Church, if we really grasp God's faithfulness toward us in our faithlessness, then we should respond by not continuing in faithlessness. In light of God's faithful love for us, we ought to be people of faithful love. And so the call today is be faithful. Be faithful. Do not be faithless. Be faithful to God's people. Be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to the Lord. But listen, there's only one way that we can live this out. It's if we guard ourselves in our spirits. In other words, we must watch over our hearts. We must watch over our hearts. This is where Israel went wrong. They had stopped watching over their hearts. They stopped believing, and it led to faithlessness everywhere. I'll ask, do you ever feel like faithlessness is impossible? Like when you think about what faithfulness looks like in your life and all the different ways that you need to be faithful, do, do, does that just crush you? Like how can I be faithful in all those ways? How can I attain that? If the standard of faithfulness seems like a crushing burden this morning, I want you to be encouraged today. First, God declares you faithful in Christ. You are faithful in him. The faithful one was crushed and consumed for your faithlessness, and you have that identity in Christ. You are faithful in him. And second, God will produce faithfulness in your life as you bring your heart to him. God will produce faithfulness in your life as you bring your heart to him. Faithfulness is not a work you need to perform. Faithfulness is not a duty that you need to do. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness is a fruit of his work in you. And so there's only one thing that you need to do. Bring your heart to the faithful Lord. Bring your heart to the faithful God. Confess your faithlessness to him. Behold his faithful love for you and offer yourself day after day after day to him as a faithful worshiper. 
and do this each day until the day he comes and says, well done, good and faithful servant. When you think about faithfulness, don't think about all the things that you need to do to stay faithful. Think about God's faithfulness to you. Bring your heart to him. Confess your sins. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his love. And offer yourself as a faithful worshiper. God's grace speaks this over us as we do. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe in your faithfulness. Help us to trust in your faithful love. We confess faithlessness in our lives. We confess faithlessness to our church covenant. We confess faithlessness in our marriage. We confess faithlessness in our own trust of you. But we praise you that you have not consumed us. We praise you that you sent your son. And though he could have come in judgment, he came in mercy and he came and he died on the cross in our place so that we would never be consumed by you. Help us to trust in your faithful love. We offer ourselves to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, church.